Unfortunately, uh, we're all too aware of tragedy in life, aren't we? Um, sometimes tragedy is close to home, and it only makes the local paper or rotates in small-town circles. That's kind of the way it was when a classmate of mine, classmate of mine drowned uh, one summer afternoon while I was in elementary school. Sometimes events happen that make the national or international news, like horrible shootings in schools and natural disasters or plane crashes. And people in these situations, rightly so, are in a loss for what to do. They're at a loss for what to say, which is fine. Um, But with the, the advent of social media, people often try and say something, which isn't always the right thing to do. And in our effort to interject, to emote, to help, whatever the motive, people often offer solutions that are devoid of nuance. They offer blame that is too soon or not the right venue, or they offer thoughts and prayers. I'm not quite sure what each person means when they say, my thoughts and prayers are with you, but in general, the statement comes off as grossly generic And if I am in deep distress, for example, and someone says, my thoughts and prayers are with you, that can be about as insulting as it is useless. First of all, if I know who you are and you know me and you know about my tragedy, I already know that you have thought about me. There's no need to say it. Thoughts without actions really don't have any power. If I know you and I say, I'm praying for you, that makes some sense. Thank you. Prayers of comfort and strength and fortitude and grace, I'll receive those prayers gladly. The problem is, when we have agency to act, agency to act in someone's life, that is, when we have power to actually help a person, and when we merely or only offer the played out trope of thoughts and prayers, that's a problem. I was walking by the little hatchery at Maritime Heritage Park a few weeks ago with my parents. They were up visiting, and Samara was with us. She's running around, and she and my dad love to play chase. And in her five-year-old glee, she backed up, backed up, backed up, and her back went against that guardrail right by Whatcom Creek. Whatcom Creek was raging that day. It was after all that snow melt and whatnot. And it was a sobering experience. Now, what if, there's, what if there was no guardrail? there at Whatcom Creek? And and what if a kid fell in and drowned? And what if the response from the city of Bellingham was, hashtag, so sorry for your loss, our thoughts and prayers are with you, and that's it. No guardrail gets installed after that because it's too expensive, too controversial, too many special interest groups that can't see eye to eye about the guardrail. And so arguments ensue about the height of the guardrail. Should it be this high or that high? whether it should be metal or wood or some polymer, whether it should be bid to a local contractor or should it go to the lowest bidder, no matter who that is, whether it should be painted or natural, and if it's painted, what color should it be? I think blue, of course, but... Prayers offered after a tragedy or or even during the season of struggle are good and they're helpful and they're biblical We're called to pray in every circumstance. But I wonder if our failure as individuals and as societies isn't because we fail to offer thoughts and prayers. It's because we don't pray soon enough. Our prayers are reactive far too often. And they're not relational, they're not consistent, and they're not proactive. 
let me show you what I think I mean by letting Jesus show you what I think he means. If you're able, please stand with me as we read Luke 22, 39 through 53. And he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. But while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, And one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, have you come out here with clubs and swords as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Lord, you are amazing. You are amazing to be able to to know what was about to happen and to go through with it without exercising your privilege and power, without wiping out these (laughs) scumbags who had come to frame you and to harm you. You are amazing. I don't know a person who could do this I want to be a person who could do this. And I pray, Lord, and I think you want us to to have this quality of life. So I pray by the power of your spirit as we enter into this word that you would help us, that you would help us to be more like you. And if anything, help us to grow in awe and appreciation of who you are. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, of course, was Transfiguration Sunday, the day we recall that Jesus is revealed in all his divinity on a mountaintop. And there on that mountaintop, he was affirmed by the Father as the Son of God. And his authority was revealed to be that of even greater than Moses and Elijah, the two great men representing the law and the prophets. Today, We're in a text that reveals Jesus not on a mountaintop. Well, he's on a different mountaintop, isn't he? But he's on his knees, and he's sweating blood, and eventually arrested. And we might be tempted to think, how did it all go so wrong for Jesus? We had him transfigured just last week, and now he's at the low point. 
But make no mistake, Jesus is not a victim in this story. This wasn't a mistake on his part, and not that of God the Father. As I mentioned last week, Jesus' divinity was revealed on the Mount of Transfiguration, but his glory is revealed in going to the cross. The direction of glory for Jesus and thus for us is down. It's self-giving for the sake of others. And ultimately, true glory is found in love of God and love of neighbor, no matter what the cost. That's the story here. As we walk through the passage together, pay attention to how Jesus navigates an extremely stressful situation and compare that with how his disciples who are with him navigate the same situation. Let's begin with the setting. Jesus and his disciples have just shared in the Passover meal, the Last Supper as we have come to call it. And after that meal, Jesus takes his disciples up the Mount of Olives John records that they went out singing hymns, likely the Hallel Psalms, which are Psalms 113 to 118. These psalms are psalms of praise. Hallel is the root of that word hallelujah, which means praise Yahweh. Close this door. It's bugging me. Jesus knows he's going to suffer, and even though his disciples are unwilling to grasp this reality, Jesus is able to sing praises to God. Praise and thanks in the midst of trial, it's an important discipline. Singing praises in the midst of trial isn't an exercise in just pretending things are better than they are. It's it's an exercise in recognizing the fact that as bad as things are, there are still good things that God is worthy to be praised about. And because God has been good and is good, our praises can inspire hope that he will be seen, uh, that he will see us through even these worst of situations and that he can transform them into something praiseworthy. That's why no matter what happens in the news, we don't shy away from it, we name it, but we also don't stop praising God because he's still good. You can almost imagine this group of men marching up this mountain, which is 2,660 feet tall, not much, but still a hike. And on the way up the mountain, they are chanting these Hebrew psalms. Now, the disciples may not realize it, but Jesus knows that difficult times are ahead. He loves his brothers, and so he encourages them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Then he withdraws a distance, a stone's throw away, colloquialism for a little way away. Uh, And he's kneeling, which indicates submissiveness, humility, urgency, fervency. Oftentimes, ancient Hebrew people would pray standing up, maybe with arms raised. So the fact that he's kneeling is saying something. And while he's kneeling, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. This prayer has been prayed, absorbed, studied, emulated by countless followers of Jesus over the years. And from this prayer um, comes what some of the inner travelers call the prayer of relinquishment. The prayer of relinquishment is the antidote to two common mistakes that we often make in prayer. The first mistake is the false idea that if we pray with enough faith, if we pray with enough passion, with enough people praying with us, or for a long enough time, God will have to answer our prayer. 
This is common uh, in the way of thinking for people who believe in a name it or claim it pra uh, practice. Um, if you name a promise in Jesus' name, you can claim it as good as yours. Conversely, though, if you don't get what you pray for, healing or peace or a job or a new car, uh, the relationship you want in life, then something must be wrong with you or wrong with your faith or wrong with your relationship with God. That's how some people err on one side of the spectrum. Even uh, for those who see the clear error in this prosperity movement and the name it and claim it prayer movement, people can still fall into the trap of, of merely praying for what they want, as if God, if he listens to us at all, is there just to do what I want and to provide for the things that I think I need, okay? The second general error in prayer is to go the completely opposite direction. Some people seem to have no sense that their prayers uh, matter much at all. Rather than relinquishment, there's the, the idea of resignation. They throw their hands in the air and decide that God is more like the fate or a general, the universe. My neighbor loves to say the universe led me here and there. I'm like, how does that work? But uh, so, so it's this, this idea that it, it's kind of everything that's going to happen is going to happen. Why bother? God doesn't really change anything if we pray. But Jesus doesn't follow, uh, fall into either one of these traps. Fatalism on the one side, name it and claim it on the other side. And let's break down his prayer to see what we can learn. Notice the address. He doesn't start with a bunch of fancy words. He doesn't start with, the, with grandiose theological terms. He doesn't begin overly formal or overly casual. And I emphasize that point because there's a lot of overly casual prayer out there. What's up, God? My homeboy. Jesus doesn't quite go there, right? Um, he calls God his father. He's praying to someone he knows. And he's praying to someone that he knows loves him. That's important. We have several examples of Jesus praying in the gospel accounts, and he begins them by addressing God as his father. Prayer is a relational activity for Jesus. He isn't talking to a force or to a power. He isn't addressing a genie or a cosmic slot machine that's there to give him what he wants when he wants. He's in a relationship with the one to whom he prays. And now, before you write off this with the excuse of, well, yeah, God is literally his father. He can call him that, but I can't call him that. Uh, Jesus also teaches us in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke 11 to address God as Father. He tells us to do the same thing. Through Jesus, his Father becomes our Father, who is in heaven. Now, here's my point. Jesus is addressing someone he knows and trusts. He's praying to the Father, who he has just been singing praises to. Jesus prays, check this out, before trouble comes. He's not just sending hashtag thoughts and prayers, kind of sentiments after tragedy happens to him, okay? And because he's praying relationally, he can ask from his gut, from his heart, for what he really hopes for. He can express his doubts and his fears and his true self, and he doesn't have to be afraid that the father will be mad or that the father will shame him or that the father will desert him. Isn't it true that in some of our human relationships, we get afraid to say what's really on our mind around some people, right? Because we're afraid oh, it might offend them. It might push them away. I don't want to lose that relationship. 
We don't have to worry about that with the Father. He's so gracious. His love can't be broken by our brokenness. Well, Jesus asks that if the Father is willing, if it's possible, if there's any other way, that the cup be removed from Jesus. The cup, of course, in biblical language, represents judgment. It represents wrath. It represents the righteous result of judgment upon people who rebel against God. Jesus knows that he's headed for destruction, and in order to to take on what humanity deserves for our rebellion— And he's willing to do this for our redemption, but it's going to be so horrible for him, so painful, that he legitimately wants to know, Papa, is there any other way? So Jesus is honest in his prayer. You can't relinquish something that you don't own. You can't give up a desire if you don't name the desire in the first place. If you're not in touch with what you really want or how you really feel. So Jesus enters into this prayer relationally and he approaches the Father as one that he trusts. And then he's able to express his true self, his true desire. And third, he's able to relinquish his control of the outcome to the Father. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. You may have thought a little strange that Schoon read the Annunciation story where the angel comes to Mary and What's he doing? It's not Christmas time. It's not Advent. Uh, I just had that in there because where do you think Jesus learned this from? It's mom and dad. Look how hard it was for Joseph and for Mary to accept what was happening in their life. For Joseph to say, okay, well, the angel said so, so I'm going to stick with this fiance of mine who's pregnant, not by me. And for Mary just to say, Lord, let it be. I'm your servant. These are the two parents that Jesus grew up with. Let's not forget that Jesus is human and divine, and we shouldn't lean him toward one way or the other, that he's both. He learned a thing or two from his parents, I believe. So Jesus knows and trusts the Father because he's prayed many times before. He's not just a tragedy prayer. He prays, it's his practice to pray. He prays and sings words of joy and thanksgiving to the Father. He has prayed for discernment when he was choosing the 12 disciples. He's rested in the Father through prayer and silence and solitude when he was too fatigued from ministry and had to go off by himself to pray. And it's because of his relationship with the Father's faithful track record that Jesus is now in this moment of darkness and pain and stress able to relinquish control. It's not something that you just, it's not like if you're out of shape, you can just go run a marathon tomorrow. That doesn't happen. It takes training, and prayer is relational. It's a lesson for us to tend to our relationship with God, our practice of prayer in the good times, not just the times when our backs are against a wall or a tragedy has already come. Well, what does the good father do when Jesus pours his heart out, both his desire and his desire to follow the father's leading? The father sends an angel, a supporter. The father sends the son help to strengthen him, not to escape what's about to come, but to endure it and to persevere. Jesus, in fact, at this point, when the angel comes, doesn't stop praying 
Just the opposite. He ends up praying with more intensity now that he's strengthened. And I wonder what he was praying about. I have some educated guesses. This is not gospel truth. It's just what one guy thinks. But I think, I think if I read Jesus correctly in the other parts of the scriptures, I think he's praying that the Father would strengthen him so that he could see his mission through. I think that the angel came to strengthen Jesus to persevere in prayer, and then Jesus prays that he would persevere on what was to come. And I think Jesus was praying for his disciples and the disciples that the disciples would make like you and me. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in the 17th chapter of John's gospel, he's praying a whole chapter for his disciples. And the setting is not the Mount of Olives um, in John's gospel, but the timing is nearly the same. And I think Jesus was praying that his disciples would make it out alive, that they would be restored after their fall, that they would be filled with the Spirit and continue in the mission of the church. Frankly, it's really the only explanation for why there is a church is that Jesus would be praying. In fact, just before this, he prays that, he tells Peter, hey, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have interceded for you, that after your fall, you would be restored. And sure enough, that's exactly what happens with Peter, the head of the church in the, in the early church. Now, Jesus was in such anguish, so intense in his prayer that he burst the capillaries in his face so that his sweat was mixed with blood. And then the text says that when Jesus got up from prayer, he found that his disciples were sleeping instead of praying. And I I find his understanding touching. The master recognized that they were sleeping because of their sorrow. Sad nap. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes our sorrow and our confusion and our weakness, it causes us to withdraw, doesn't it, rather than to engage. But Jesus is as understanding as he is, He also cares too much about his disciples to just let it go. Why were you sleeping? Get up, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He knows that prayer is the key to this. But it was too late. The the soldiers were there to arrest Jesus, and like falling dominoes, the scene accelerates now into a flood of trials and temptation. Judas comes and betrays Jesus with a kiss. His friend, his one of the 12 most intimate people in his life betrays him with a kiss. Soldiers come armed. Religious leaders are there as well. This was truly a moment of darkness. How did the Son of God, who could have escaped at any moment with the word, with the snap of his finger, calling down a legion of angels, how did he resign himself to this moment to hand himself over? It was through his relinquishment of his desires and his acceptance of God's will. It was through the hard work of prayer. And what about the people that didn't do the hard work of prayer? Those who didn't relinquish their desires in order to obey the will of God. They're people like Judas. They're the temple guards. They're the religious leaders. They're the disciples, one of who tried to fight and cut off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest, They were ill-prepared. What can we learn from Jesus here? We can learn that practicing the prayer of relinquishment can help prepare us to live well. 
first, it seems like a horrible idea. Give up control from the time we can, I, I mean, I cheer when my kids could tie their own shoes. You know how amazing that is? Ah, put their arms through the little holes in their shirts by themselves. These are big milestones in a parent's life, things that make you easy, you know, potty training, all that stuff, right? So we're constantly telling our kids to be more independent. And to a certain degree, those are really good things. I wouldn't take any of them back. But, but now, it's like, we're in this world that talks about look out for number one and, and go be a self-starter and go be self-made, which is all a lie anyway, but you know what I'm saying. And now we're talking about a prayer of relinquishment. No way, it goes every, against every grain in my body. But if you begin to just peel back one or two layers of the logic behind the reasons I don't want to give up control, you really you really come face to face with the fact that I'm not in very much control anyway. That most of it's an illusion, the things that we grip onto and hold onto. Those things we think we control usually end up being self-serving and self-destructive. The prayer of relinquishment invites us, like Jesus did, to express our real selves, our, our true desires, our fears and our confusion, our anger, our hopes, to a loving Father who listens to us and doesn't turn away. And then we are invited to listen to him and to wait on him. And we trust that his way, even if it's counterintuitive, and even when it is challenging, is the way that actually leads to eternal life. The prayer of relinquishment gives us confidence that we aren't just winging it in life, but we're about God's business. Have you ever thought about that? Like, you ever wonder, if, man, I don't even know what I'm doing. Like, I'm just, I woke up and I'm still doing this career. I'm, it, it, chances are, you could trace it back to a time when you said yes to God and was like, okay, I'm still in the right track. But it sure is comforting, confidence instilling to know that I'm doing what I'm doing because God has called me to do it or invited me and that I've relinquished things along the way to do what I'm doing. When Corey and I were first married, serving in the Coast Guard and we were transferred from Port Angeles to the San Francisco Bay Area, just north of San Francisco in Marin County. And as cool as that area is, it was a really tough transition for us. Married less than a year. I was at a new unit, learning new things, meeting new people. Corey was at a new university. We felt completely unsettled. And we lived there for six years. We made friends. We took advantage of the proximity to San Francisco and Lake Tahoe and the Pacific Ocean, the warmer weather. But it was never home, you know what I mean? We struggled with it. Corey had an especially hard time and, and would often mention her longing to return to Washington. Whereas I, I, dealt with, I dealt with it differently. I tried to ignore the pangs for home by diving into my work there. But as the two of us grew in Christ, we finally came to the point where we honestly were able to relinquish our displeasure for being away from home in Washington, and great peace came over us. It took five and a half years to get there, and six months later, God calls us home to go to Regent and to meet some of you and to plant this church so I could meet the rest of you. I'm not sure how that would have worked out had I did it, done it a different way. The prayer of relinquishment isn't only about giving up my perceived rights or my illusion of control in my personal life. 
Relinquishment can also have positive implications for our neighbors and for whole societies as well. Consider John Woolman, one of the great uh, names in the abolition of slavery. Woolman grew up in New Jersey in the early 1700s. As a young man, he was already accustomed to hearing the voice of God. And one day, his employer asked him to write a bill of sale for a young African-American woman. Uh, she was a girl, actually, an uh, underage girl. He, he asked him to write a bill of sale for her purchase. And in a conflict of conscience, this is the 1700s, and the idea that you obey your master pretty big deal. So he's in this conflict of conscience. Do I obey my master or do I jeopardize my job and reputation? Whether or not what he felt was right in the sight of God, a woman prayerfully relinquished his reputation in order to obey God, and he refused to write the bill of sale. That was a personal relinquishment. But as he grew older, he visited the South, and he saw how the horrible institution of slavery was affecting people, and he was convicted that he could do more to relieve the pain and oppression he saw not only for, for black slaves, but also for mistreated indigenous people. To fight the system of which he was a privileged white man would not only mean oppression, but great loss. And regardless, he cut against the grain, relinquishing his rights in order to preach and to teach and to write about the gospel and the freedom of Christ. See, the impetus to abolish slavery and and John Woolman's success in that was not self-motivated. It came from the deep work of prayer to the Father. And once while he was in prayer, he heard a voice saying, John Woolman is dead. After trying to figure out what it meant, he wrote in his journal, I perceived the language John Woolman is dead meant no more than the death of my own will. How would God's kingdom break into our societies and our culture if more of us were willing to relinquish our rights and privileges for the sake of other people? If more of us allowed the Father to empower us to relinquish our rights, even good rights, for the good of others, how would he talk to us about relinquishing the good and constitutional right even to having certain kinds of guns? Or our privilege over and against the opposite gender or different racial groups or people of different immigration status. Please hear me, and mentally, if you've already cut me off because I did a political trigger, or you've got preconceived notions about where I'm going, just know that I'm in it with you, and wrestle with me with these questions. How would things be different if we were willing to express our hopes and our fears before God, and then be open to what he's leading us to do. Not a pundit. We're not a talking head. We're not a journalist. But what God was telling us to do, when when you honestly talk to God about these things, what is he saying to you? I believe that God would lead us to paths that would upset liberals and conservatives. The Father would lead us to make everyone mad. He would lead us to death and he would lead us to true life. 
In the end, that's what this passage is about. Can we learn about the prayer of relinquishment from this passage? Absolutely, and I think we have. And I encourage us to practice it. But ultimately, the good news of this gospel passage is that Jesus was the one praying the prayer of relinquishment at the right time. The good news is that when the disciples failed and when we still fail, Jesus is steadfast and willing to die so that we might live. We have a life to relinquish only because he relinquished his in the first place. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for relinquishing the right to your life. We sometimes forget how human you are at the same time as being God. I sometimes think that it must have been an easy choice for you, that ultimately you had no choice. But broken capillaries in your face and blood mixed with your own sweat and tears tells a different story to me. And the heart-wrenching struggle of hearing you cry out to your father in the garden and then again on the cross, tell me a different story. That you really did suffer. That you really truly died. That you relinquished your life for me, for us. And we also see that the Father honored you and raised you into glory that's almost unimaginable. Resurrected, ascended, and now reigning over all things. Help us to see and to have courage and to know that the prayer of relinquishment doesn't merely lead us to death. It just leads us to death ourselves so we could have life for us and for others and as I, I pray Lord that you would speak clearly to us and that you would give us great courage and help us to encourage one another amen <laughs>